0: ABC listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Hello, I'm Sarah Dingle, coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal Land. Welcome to this week. rates have remained on hold for the second month in a row, leaving Australian borrowers breathing a collective sigh of relief.
1: The Reserve Bank says its current strategy is working to bring inflation down, but the job's not done yet.
0: With a weakening economy and uncertain outlook, the cash rate will stay at 4.1%. The Reserve Bank acknowledging many households are experiencing a painful squeeze.
2: I have a house, I'm paying a mortgage, and you know, suddenly doubled.
1: Recently, my son bought a house and I couldn't believe the loan payments on his... Mortgage. Mortgage, yeah. Like nearly, maybe five, $6,000 a month. So what can Australians expect in the months ahead? I'm hoping that we have seen the end of rising interest rates, but there is still a chance of some increased rates. Emma Gray is an economist at Impact Economics and Policy. The RBA have kept rates on hold this month because inflation is coming down. And so it's definitely past its peak. And we've come down from well over 7% to now at a flat 6%. And that's actually lower than what the Reserve Bank had been forecasting. I think the other big reason for pausing is because there's quite a lag on how the interest rate rises that have already occurred actually have an impact through the economy. By the time they really work their way through the whole economy, could be slowing things down a lot more than we can see at this stage.
0: Hmm. So the price of goods has eased overall, but prices for services uh, remain high, uh, like rents, for instance. Mm. Given that there's still so much to play out in terms of the impact of all these rate rises, what, if anything, can be done about the high prices for services?
1: The services inflation is definitely more tricky to tame. In particular, The one you mentioned there that's probably most apparent to lots of people is rents. That's potentially actually related to the interest rate rises. So the whole purpose of interest rate rises is to pull down inflation by slowing down general levels of demand across the economy for spending. And and that's working for, for goods, but it also adds pressure in the housing market. And it means that there's plenty of landlords who have mortgages who are increasing rents in order to keep up with the higher costs of servicing their mortgages that are coming about from increased interest rates. So it's possible here that higher interest rates that are trying to bring down inflation are actually adding to inflation a little bit. So that's a really tricky cycle then to get out of. We're also seeing insurance premiums going through the roof. Mm. And that is due to a combination of factors, partly earlier in the year, seeing a lot of natural disasters occurring. But there's a possibility that, again, interest rate rises might be creating some risks for these insurance businesses. So quite a vicious cycle again there. We'll come back to
0: inflation in a second, but I just want to ask you about unemployment. In the past few months, the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, has spoken about the fact that the unemployment rate is too low. There is an expectation that it will rise. And also very soon, Australia is about to set its first full employment target. What do you think it will settle on? The government will settle on there in terms of a number? And what does that mean?
1: The whole idea of that is that if absolutely everyone is employed potentially not all of those employment matches are going to be the most efficient or particularly productive. And so you might have lots of people earning incomes, but potentially not particularly high levels of productivity. And so, All of that almost excess income is going to be contributing to increasing demand and that's going to push inflation up and yet you're not necessarily getting like the productivity growth and that kind of underlying economic growth that you want general consensus is that that might be at about four percent which is higher than what we have currently but there are definitely differing opinions on that and clearly the RBA have been indicating that we're probably over full employment at the moment and that we're probably lower than where that natural rate of unemployment should be.
0: So the RBA's inflation target band is between 2 and 3%. That's on average over time. But the RBA also said this week that it expects inflation to be back within that 2 to 3% target range in late 2025. That's months later than it has previously forecast. So the last time they mentioned this was in a statement following their May meeting and they said we would be back in that target band by mid 2025. What's your assessment of what's going on there? And and should we be concerned that that forecast has been pushed out?
1: I think that delay in when the Reserve Bank is now anticipating us to get back into the target band is perhaps being driven by the shift that we were just speaking to before between goods inflation and services inflation. So we're seeing that Inflation in services is now what's really taking hold and that is much harder to get under control. There's also uh, the possibility that the Reserve Bank is seeing that um, the economy is slowing down and so it's possible that they're coming around to this idea of just doing a bit more of a sit and wait to how the rate rises they've already put into place will flow through and pull things down rather than continuing to go so hard and risk really pushing the economy under. So if they
0: want to see the full implication of the decisions already made in terms of interest rate hikes, do you think they will sit on the cash rate until the end of the year or could we see rates hiked again?
1: it would be quite sensible, I think, uh, given the current data to sit on the cash rate where it is through to the end of the year. That will depend on the inflation numbers that come out through the rest of this year. And if for some reason, inflation seems to be stalling and not coming down anymore, then they would definitely go again to really bring inflation down more. But So long as inflation keeps up the current downwards momentum that we've seen, then it would be sensible to sit and wait to see how much the economy is slowing down.
0: Well, I mean, if you're a mortgage borrower, it is nice to see rates on hold instead of going up again. But what is your prediction for when interest rates might actually start to come down? Or is that some kind of impossible utopia at the moment?
1: (laughs) I think that is probably wishful thinking. I'm sure it will happen at some point, but I do feel it is just far too early when we're not really sure if rates have even peaked yet so i think looking ahead to when they'll they'll come down is probably definitely too early to say it will really just depend on how quickly that inflation comes back down to target and whether and how much harm has potentially been done to the economy already, if we see a lot of economic harm, then we could see interest rates easing off to make things a bit easier for people. Hopefully, we don't see lots of economic harm, but that would also mean interest rates staying at their current rates for a bit longer.
0: Emma Gray is an economist at Impact Economics and Policy. (laughs) Trump has been indicted again. He's been charged with attempting to overturn the 2020 U.S. election.
2: Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding.
0: The indictment alleges that Trump embarked on a conspiracy to change the outcome of the presidential election and that his actions led to a mob of his supporters storming the US Capitol
2: The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021 was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies
0: At a court appearance in Washington DC on Thursday, Donald Trump pleaded not guilty.
3: This is the persecution of the person that's leading by very, very substantial numbers in the Republican primary and leading Biden by a lot. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. We can't let this happen in America.
0: It's the third time the former president has been indicted in four months. However, these are arguably the most serious charges he's faced to date.
3: The accusations are pretty grave and they really go to the core of the US political system.
0: Josh Gerstein is the senior legal affairs reporter at Politico.
3: The other cases, I think one, many analysts view as somewhat trivial about whether he properly reported uh, hush money payments that were made to the porn star Stormy Daniels back in the right before the 2016 election. The other case is pretty significant involving classified documents that he allegedly hung on to uh, at Mar-a-Lago after leaving the presidency. But this is really a kind of unprecedented criminal case charging him with various conspiracies, uh, allegedly felony conspiracies to interfere in the outcome and the tabulation uh, of the 2020 presidential election. Uh, and, you know, it's it's something that uh, the indictment refers to as an attack on the bedrock uh, democracy of the United States. So I don't see how a case can get a lot more serious than
0: that. I mean, as you say, incredibly serious indictment Has any US president ever been charged over anything like this before?
3: Nothing even remotely close to this, I think we had one other president who was given the equivalent of a, a traffic ticket or something that like that by a local uh, police officer and Obviously, there was some consideration of bringing criminal charges against Richard Nixon both while he was president and then after he resigned the presidency what about fifty years ago, but he got a pardon from his successor, uh, President Ford, and so that was sort of taken off the table there 's really never been anything even remotely close to this. And now we're dealing with three indictments, uh, not just one. So we really are in unch- uncharted waters.
0: The charges from this latest indictment are two and a half years in the making. There were calls in the immediate aftermath of the January six riots for Trump to be charged at that point. Why has it taken this long for this case to be brought? Well,
3: I think the people that were calling for him to be charged right after the Capitol riot in 2021 uh, were expecting something more like an incitement charge uh, that he had gotten the crowd riled up at a rally that took place um, around the same time as the first attacks on the Capitol building and that therefore he should be viewed as part of those uh, attacks. This case talks about that violence um, in passing, but it's really not completely focused on that. I mean, one of the logical problems with blaming his speech that day for what happened later in the day is that those events had actually gotten underway while his speech was still going on. Uh, The issue was not so much what he said at the speech or what other figures like Rudy Giuliani said in their speeches near the White House that day, but what led up to that and the, the variety of statements that are cataloged in this indictment that he made about the election being stolen, that there was widespread fraud. And this indictment goes through in great detail and says, well, no, he was told by this advisor and that advisor and that lawyer that this example he was giving of fraud in this particular state was false. And he continued to give it despite being advised numerous times to the contrary.
0: So there are four charges in this indictment. What exactly are they?
3: One is a very broad-based charge called conspiracy against the United States. It's not something that you see very often. It is sometimes brought in tax cases, but also where you have a complicated situation where someone is accused of trying to flout the will of several different federal agencies through some kind of scheme. There's no real federal agency at work here. The agency is sort of the Congress and, and the broad process of certifying a presidential election in the Congress. So when I say that this is in uncharted territory, it's sort of an innovative uh, use, I guess, if you want to be praiseworthy of it, of an existing statute. They also charged him under a conspiracy to violate civil rights, uh, something known as one of the Ku Klux Klan laws, which really dates back about a century and a half to the aftermath of the Civil War and efforts to interfere in the rights of black people to vote. Uh, This is not painted as as that kind of a race-based interference, but simply the fact that people in various states cast their ballots the way they did. And the claim here is that Trump conspired with others to prevent those votes from being properly tallied. And that that again, it's not the kind of case I think has ever been brought before, but you could see how it's a logical extension of the way those cases have been brought. And then there's a couple counts that involve uh, obstruction of the actual certification of the vote on January sixth, twenty 2021. Those charges are very similar to charges that have been brought against, in the most serious cases, involving people that either committed violence or allegedly caused violence on Capitol Hill that day. The, the groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers have faced that kind of obstruction of Congress charge.
0: So special counsel Jack Smith says he wants a speedy trial. Um, There are a few minor events in the months ahead, which could pose a problem like the Republican primaries and the 2024 presidential election. Donald Trump has, we know, pleaded not guilty. What is the next step in this case?
3: Well, the indication at the arraignment was that by the end of August, uh, the judge who's overseeing this, who didn't handle the arraignment, would like to set a trial date uh, for this case. That's going to be pretty complicated for the reasons you mentioned, these various political hurdles and events. Um, In addition to the primaries and the caucuses, you have the traditional debates that take place among the candidates for for each party, and then usually between the nominees later in the cycle. So you have all those sorts of events. And then you have the fact that this is not the only indictment of uh, former President Trump. There's two other criminal cases that are pending. And both of those have trials already scheduled in March of 2024 and May of 2024. So one of the questions simply becomes is the overall calendar here is becoming so complicated that you really feel like you may need a traffic cop to sort of sort all of this out. And and when you have separate criminal cases, there isn't really any individual in charge. Generally, the federal cases will take precedent over the the locally charged ones like the Hush Money case up in New York, but exactly who gets to go first and when is a tricky thing to work out. And so the president's lawyers seem to be pushing for delay in all these cases to try to see if they can push them past November of next year. That would not only uh, solve some of the political scheduling problems, but of course, if former President Trump wins the election in November 2024, the two federal cases would seem to be dead at that point. And then the state one also might really be put into some kind of hibernation. So it's a pretty big gamble uh, by the former president, uh, a lot that he has riding on winning the election next year, if indeed he is the Republican nominee.
0: It should be said that he remains the front runner to be the Republican nominee. Is this indictment having any impact on his status as the frontrunner at all?
3: I mean, I think it's kind of incremental at this point, given that this is the third criminal case that's been brought against him. And we may well see a fourth case filed uh, down in Georgia in the coming days. Um, It has so far solidified his standing with his base and with the Republican Party base or the people who still identify as Republicans. But uh, I think the thinking among many analysts is that each of these charges and each of these new cases makes it more complicated and more difficult for him to prevail in the uh, general election. And so the real question seems to be, is there any chance that, Maybe all the other Republican candidates would would, uh, gang up on him if they viewed him as sufficiently vulnerable as a result of these uh, cases. So far, we're only hearing a couple of the significant challengers to Trump for the Republican nomination say anything negative uh, about his actions in connection with January 6th and say anything even open-minded to these criminal cases. The vast majority of the rivals that he faces for the nomination have denounced these prosecutions as politically motivated partisan witch hunts and have talked about questions like why isn't the current President Joe Biden being impeached or why isn't his son Hunter uh, facing more serious criminal charges. That's been the response from most of the Republican field.
0: Josh Gerstein is Politico's senior legal affairs reporter. week, the Northern Territory became the first Australian jurisdiction to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12. The NT has the country's highest rate of juvenile detention, and almost 100% of those children are Aboriginal. Part of raising the age is actually making sure there is a quick consequence for those young people and that we get them into the supports that they need.
2: The sort of children that do get caught up in the criminal justice system, more often than not, have unmet health needs, unmet issues relating to serious trauma, and are often children that that are in contact with the child protection system.
0: The NT Police Association is strongly opposed to the change, but other states and territories are following the NT's lead. The ACT is finalising legislation to raise the age to 12, and Victoria will do so next year. It's hoped the move will reduce the number of children in prison, but those campaigning to raise the age say it doesn't go far enough.
2: Well, I think it's a halfway step to being in the right place.
0: David Halpin is Chair of Law at Southern Cross University and was also a former magistrate in country New South Wales for more than two decades.
2: The memory that I keep coming back to is that the non Indigenous children in those communities must have been absolutely brilliant kids because I never saw them. In other words, there was whole towns that I sat in for years where there was never a non-Indigenous child before the court. It was only Indigenous children who would come before the court. My impressions are borne out by the numbers, by the actual statistics, and the over-representation of First Nations young people is just extraordinary. They are the most imprisoned race in the world. And for young people, it's even worse.
0: What happens currently for young people who are 10, 11, uh, 12 even, and are locked up awaiting sentencing or post-sentencing?
2: So what generally happens is they're charged with an offence, they go before the court and if the court so decides they're refused bail and locked in detention. In the Northern Territory and indeed in many places in Australia, particularly rural and remote places, those young people will be removed from the community in which they live and placed sometimes days driving away. That effectively means they are cut off possibly for the first time in their life, from all of the support systems, whether it be their immediate family or their extended family or friends who they go to school with or a trusted school teacher, they're cut off from everyone and they're isolated from them pending a court outcome. Now, that court outcome will generally be, in more than two-thirds of cases, not sending them to detention. So what it means for those young people is pain, suffering, trauma, Um, that is in no way going to help them with what they most likely need, which is care, compassion, rehabilitation and support.
0: What does this mean for everyone else in society, though? What will it mean for those who are victims of crime where the perpetrator is, say, 11?
2: Well, I suppose it's exactly the same as if the perpetrator of the crime now is nine or if the perpetrator of the crime is 11 and yet the charges are dismissed because the prosecution couldn't prove what is known as Dolly incapax—that that is they had the capacity to form the criminal intent to commit the crime. So really what this does is reinforce the need for alternative measures of care, support and reducing criminal behaviour from children.
0: The United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child actually recommends 14 as the minimum age of criminal responsibility. Would 14 be a more appropriate age than 12?
2: well 14 is the age uh, as you say that's recommended by the un and that is in the age in many countries similar countries to australia um germany spain for example and also in some countries that you wouldn't that would surprise people like china and russia cambodia um so 14 is the is the target age i can understand that 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 jurisdictions within australia want to do it as a as a two step uh, uh, as a two-step measure, and that's probably because they're concerned about the resources needed to pour into these young people. And so it makes sense in some ways to stagger it. Um, But yes, 14 is a much more appropriate agent, and that's not really me saying that or the UN. It's actually doctors, uh, paediatricians, those who study the neurology of Growing Mind will say that uh, people, until they are 14, Um, I don't have that level of intent, knowledge, criminal responsibility that we would expect.
0: What does the medical evidence tell us about children's capacity to regulate their emotions and actually make effective decisions, decisions which will not get them in trouble with the law?
2: You know, as a prior magistrate, I would have sat through literally thousands of applications under the Dolly Incapax principle that I mentioned before. That is where the prosecution... Bear the burden of proving that a young person does have criminal capacity,
0: and that's and between the ages of ten and thirteen, isn't it? There's a sort of a, correct. it's like a question mark.
2: Correct. It's actually a presumption. So it's a presumption that they do not have the capacity unless the prosecution can prove otherwise. Some places ten to thirteen, most places ten to fourteen. So what I read in hundreds of reports um, was that, generally speaking and this is why the United Nations has chosen this age, generally speaking, those under the age of 14 do not have the capacity uh, to form criminal intent as you or I would. And that is because of the neurological development, the staged growth that occurs with, with young people. And I think the other factor that's really important is there's a lack of consequence or uh, uh, of action equals consequence equals crime in many young people who've experienced trauma's mind. And I think the other factor is a substantial number of these young people also have a myriad of other problems. Uh, Perhaps they have fetal alcohol syndrome. Perhaps they are brought up in a really dysfunctional family. Perhaps their community is dysfunctional. So those are the kinds of factors, perhaps their hearing is ill-affected or they have some other physical or psychological disability. So for all of those reasons, under 14-year-olds are so much more likely to be dealt with in any event other than by way of criminal responsibility.
0: The Northern Territory is actually a standout across Australian jurisdictions in this because the age of criminal responsibility in all other states and territories is still 10 as it stands. Is there a risk that by the Northern Territory lifting the age to 12 it will never actually reach 14 because that will be viewed as enough. Uh,
2: There there is that risk. Um, And I think that that is just going to require vigilance from the people who are uh, supporting, spending a lot of time lobbying for this change. Groups like Amnesty International have have commented uh, that, you know, this is halfway there and they're going to keep on lobbying for further change. And I think I think there is a risk that it will that it will uh, stop there but there's also the real possibility that the that the ice is broken the door is pushed open a little bit the world is not going to end by this change I don't think most members of the community will see any difference in their lives as a result and given that Two-thirds of these young people are released back into the community anyway. I'd like to hope that what this means is the ice will be broken and we will move towards uh, the United Nations position uh, sooner rather than later.
0: David Halpin is a former New South Wales magistrate. And that's the episode for this week. Subscribe by searching for This Week Podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Rachel Hayter, Marcus Hobbs and me, Sarah Dingle. Catch you next time.